Hey everyone, this is Mike Dunn. I'm Matt Downing. I'm Julie Cook. And you are listening to Rethinking EDU. Thanks so much for tuning in. We appreciate it. We hope that you will love this episode we have in store for you. And I want to preface the episode by just saying that a lot of Rethinking EDU is built on the back of entrepreneurship. It's built on the idea that doing school differently is a good idea. And that's something that we should really be pushing ourselves to reimagine, pushing ourselves to think how we can make that happen. And this conversation, I think, fits directly in the mission, the true mission of Rethinking EDU. And tonight, we're going to talk with Gary Schoeniger, and he is the founder of the Entrepreneurial Learning Initiative, or Gary, you, you guys call it Eli, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. And so Gary is the founder of Eli, and he's also the co-author of a book called Who Owns the Ice House? Eight Life Lessons from an Unlikely Entrepreneur. And during his time uh, at Eli, he's helped to develop the Ice House Entrepreneurship Program, and he uh, speaks on redefining entrepreneurship, the importance of entrepreneurial mindset, and he provides this sort of framework for thinking about entrepreneurship in keynotes and workshops and trainings. And Gary, when I was doing a little research on your bio, I noticed it's not just in the United States, but really all over the world. It's pretty amazing. So welcome to welcome to Rethinking EDU, Gary. Thank you very much, uh, Mike, Matt, and Julie. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited to have this conversation with you guys. I love what you're doing. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, we love what you're doing too. And I'm going to kick the mic over to Matt, and he's going to kind of start us off and really get the ball rolling on this conversation. Gary, so Mike got us into your bio a bit, right? Laying out the framework. But we really wanted to hear a bit more of your personal story, right? How you came uh, to really want to share this message with so many people. What's your personal story that has brought you to this point? Wow. Okay, that's a big one, Matt. So, so uh, you know, it, but it's an, it's a, it's, a, it's a real <laughs> question. I get it. it you know, I uh, hated school. I, I did really well up. You know, sixth grade, mm. I was you know ace in things. Middle school, the wheels started vibrating. By 10th grade, they're falling off the wagon. I, I, I never dropped out, but I emotionally, intellectually dropped out. You know, I, I, I stopped showing up. I'm still enrolled. I graduated. I don't yeah. even know how I did. But it wasn't a really pleasant experience for me. <laughs> and, you know, I can only look back on that mm. and say, time, I thought there was something wrong with me. I'm just not able to learn in this way very effectively. And I feel like everyone's passing me by and I'm getting left behind. And so, you know, I walked out of school with a high school diploma thinking, you know, now what? And, and I had a series of, you know, low-paying, you know, minimum-wage type jobs, restaurants, lawn mowing, roofing, you know, whatever. And, you know, it's just, it, it's realized that, that, um, this isn't going to work. And out of desperation, I became entrepreneurial. And I, I didn't know what the word meant. I didn't know. I just sort of saw it as a pathway. And that, you know, relatively early in my entrepreneurial journey, now I'm in my 20s, um, I started to realize that, I, you know, I'm probably making as much money as my friends 
that had gone to college that, you know, kind of followed a more traditional path. And there's something that, that I, I realized that my mind was adapting, that I had learned to think differently because of the, the circumstances. And I remember one day reading a paper, uh, a story in the newspaper, 1991. Uh, it was a recession going on. It was a metro section story about a guy that lost his job, wasn't coming back, and he didn't know what to do. He was sort of paralyzed, afraid of losing his house. Unemployment's running out. His wife's working two jobs to try to keep the household together. And I looked at that story, and I said, you know, I could help this guy. I can see opportunities everywhere. Not because I'm any smarter. It's only because I, I'm functioning in a different domain and I've learned how to recognize opportunities that people who are not entrepreneurial would overlook. And, and so that was sort of the initial thought, and it was literally January of 1991. I'm not making this up. I got this idea that if I could somehow deconstruct the mindset of an entrepreneur and how that's different from let's just say a non-entrepreneur, that that could be useful to other people. And, and not just people who want to start businesses, but it's sort of the framework somewhere underneath it. There's a hidden logic that I could somehow understand it could be useful to others. Gary, I want to dig down a little bit more into what you just said. It sounds like to me, right, we all hear entrepreneurs, right, making a lot of money, but what you just said sort of resonated with me and I think it would be helpful for our listeners as well. What does entrepreneurship mean to you, right? What's the definition to you beyond making money? Uh, it sounds like there's something deeper at the core of it. What is entrepreneurship? So that's a, that's a big question. I'll, I'll, let me try to unpack that. But Okay, I'll start with your, the first answer. I'll define it in the way that I define it, and it took me 25 years to do this because the, the – the existing definitions are woefully inadequate, out of date, and misleading. So I define it as the self-directed pursuit of opportunity to create value for others. And by creating value for others, we empower ourselves. So there are very specific reasons why I define it this way. The first and the foremost is that anyone can embrace that. You don't need to drop out of school, quit your job. The basic premise is the more useful you become, the better off you're going to be. And I don't just mean in economic terms. I mean, you know, in eudaimonic terms. I mean in terms of psychological well-being and personal growth and, and you know, environmental effectiveness and so on and so forth. So, but the problem is, like, specifically in education, people think of entrepreneurship as a business discipline. And that creates this bounded rationality that causes us to think about it as a binary. You either are or you're not. You know, a few kids are going to go down the entrepreneur track and everybody else is going down the employee track. And that's problematic. And, I, and I'm saying that the world has changed in ways that now require everyone think like an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And when you start to like look at the entrepreneurial attitudes and skills. What we see is, you know, resilience, resourcefulness, creative, critical thinking, communication, effective, you know, problem solving. These are 21st century skills. These are the skills employers are demanding. They don't call them entrepreneurial skills, but they're, they're, that's what they are. 
Gary, bear with me a little bit. I'm going to play devil's advocate. Uh, you know, Gary, I'm not an entrepreneur. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to go out there. I'm not making iPads. I'm not going to make a Tesla. I'm not, you know, going to build up a new uh, software program or, or whatnot. You know, I'm happy going to my job. I'm not an entrepreneur. I don't want to hear that. What would you say to that person? Uh, why is an entrepreneur mindset important for that person? Why is it important for everyone? Yeah, so, so well, the first thing I would say, uh, uh, Matt, is, is, look, if you're happy with your job, the status quo is suiting you, you have a sense of satisfaction, well-paid, you know, you feel like you're contributing, you're making a difference, God bless you, man, keep right on rolling. But there's a lot of people out there for whom that is not their reality, right? And, and you know, the, the desire to be innovative and entrepreneurial is innate. The, the desire to fulfill human needs through our own effort is a very powerful human need. It's part of what makes us human. Karl Marx wrote about that, right? It's part of what makes us human. You know, most of us don't get to do that. Most of us go, most of us see learning and work as drudgery, as unnecessary, or, 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 or not unnecessary, but as a necessary evil. That's the real crime. That's the real travesty, right? When we look at the student engagement statistics, you all have seen those numbers. They're not good. Two thirds of students leave high school not engaged. Yale just published a study a couple of months ago. Like 75% of kids leave high school saying it was, a, it was an unpleasant experience. Right? And, and interestingly, two-thirds of workers in the United States are not engaged in their work either. But when we look at entrepreneurial people, what we see are people that are hyper-engaged. They're not you know, on social media talking about, thank God it's Friday or here was so much wine I need to drink on Sunday night to get prepared for work on. They're, they're saying, saying, thank God it's Monday. They're like optimally engaged. They're hyper-engaged. That's why everyone needs to learn how to think like an entrepreneur. There's so much human potential we're not getting to with this arcane industrial era way of thinking that's so deeply embedded in our systems of education. We don't even need to see it's there. It's, it's a collective mindset, too. It's cultural. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And thanks for sharing that example, too. I've never really thought about it with that engagement piece. Uh, we oftentimes look at schools, and that stat is really staggering, the Yale stat. But oftentimes, I don't look at entrepreneurship as it's people engaged in their activity, and they're doing things, and they're tinkering, and they're interacting with their passions. Uh, and I really, I really appreciate the way that you frame that. I do want to follow up with one thing. This is a very subjective question, so I'm not trying to... Uh, you know, corner you on an answer here, but you've mentioned a number of innate features of entrepreneurship. I just wanted to get your your comment on this one thing. So what's one innate feature that you've been reflecting on the most when you think about entrepreneurship these days? Now, this might be different these days than it was, you know, 10 years ago or whatever, but I'm just curious, what's resonating with you the most these days in respect to entrepreneurship? In terms of a trait? Yeah, in terms of a trait. I don't believe that, that there's, a, there's a trait-based correlation. I mean, I've looked at the literature. The cor it, it, it's very low. It's, it does not, doesn't, it, it's, you know, 
0.2 or something like that. It, it, the, the correlation between like dispositional traits and entrepreneurial activity are, are, are very, very low. And psychologists have been trying to connect that for decades. And, and, and I, I think that it, it's pretty well known that certainly doesn't account for the whole picture. So, so I, I've come to believe that non-entrepreneurial behavior is learned. Right? So I'm just looking at this completely inside out. Like, look, human beings are no different than any other mammal in that we're born with the innate desire and the tendency, the capacity to learn everything we need to learn in order to adapt and thrive in our environment. That, that's innate, right? And, and in school... We're taught that someone else has figured out what we need to learn and do in order to be successful in life. And so those natural learning instincts uh, uh, atrophy. You know, I, I like to say like entrepreneurial learning is discovery learning. It's not the transfer of knowledge that we're so used to. And, and it requires a different kind of learning. It's a more organic learning. It's like error-based learning. It's... it's Trial and error, micro-experimentation, adaptation. Gary, uh, Julie here. So wondering, so looking at, uh, you know, who our audience here, you know, I'm a teacher, um, Matt and Mike, you know, we're all, we're all in schools. Um, thinking about, you know, looking at what teachers can really take away from this mindset. Um, how can <laughs> adopting an entrepreneurial mindset better equip students for their futures? What should teachers really be thinking about uh, when applying this to a, like a, a classroom? What do you think? So, you know, I can answer this in a couple of different ways, Julie, but, but like I keep stealing this quote from Jaime Kassap, who is the former head of education at Google or, or he, chief evangelist for education at Google. He said, let's stop asking kids what they want to be when they grow up. Let's start asking them what problems they want to solve and what do they need to learn or solve those problems. So I'm not saying, Julie, that we should that we should bulldoze the building and fire everybody and start over. I'm saying that when a human being is encouraged to pursue her own natural interests and develop her innate abilities in ways that contribute to the greater good, she will become optimally engaged. That's not my opinion. That's, you know, that's, that's not a controversial idea. I, I just think we, we, need to, we need to encourage more discovery learning. We need to do more of asking people to self-organize, asking students to self-organize and solve problems that they care about in real-world, ambiguous situations. That's how they'll develop the entrepreneurial attitudes and skills, the resilience, the resourcefulness, and so on and so forth. Could you maybe drill down a little bit into that? Like, how, what does that look like in a classroom? Like, I think you're talking about, you know, project-based learning. Are you talking about problem-based learning? Um, what does that look like in action? So teachers can get a picture in their mind of what you're talking about. So, but it's, a, it's about like, so this is kind of the structure of the Ice House entrepreneurship programs that we, we developed. But it's basically um, asking students what problems they see in their life, their community, their whatever, in their school that they want to solve. And 
you know, with minimal instruction, like let them go out. We, we've sort of, you know, when we looked at, this is part of the Ice House curriculum, but when you look at what entrepreneurs are doing in, in the real world, when you sort of zoom out, they're basically emulating the scientific method. And, and so that's what we're encouraging students to do. We don't always tell them that's what they're doing, but basically that's what it is. You, you know, what's the problem you, you want to solve? Okay, you got to do some background research on that problem. You got to learn about it and come back in and tell us about it. Okay, what did you learn? Now, what can you, how can you improve it? And, and start experimenting and adapting and designing and, and, and conducting micro-experiments. Come back in the classroom and tell us what you're learning. Yeah, and it's, it's a, obviously it's not just like the you know, sit and get uh, kind of uh, lecture orientation. Um, you're really asking no. students to engage. Do you think this is like an elementary model as well? I, I, we often hear this from people who teach high school. Do you think like elementary teachers can also be listening to this and think exactly or? hundred percent, hundred percent, hundred percent. So we, we've put a few thousand kids through the ice house program, middle school kids in uh, Erie, Pennsylvania, the other side of the state from you guys. And Go Google, you can Google search, there's a video called Ice House Erie. But like 12 and 13 year old kids are really delving into complex problems and becoming very engaged in solving these problems. And, and it, 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 there's a lot of data that shows that, that when, when kids are exposed to this kind of learning, all their other academic achievement scores go up. Exactly, exactly. And I think sometimes too, when we talk about entrepreneurship, and I know when we talk about um, um, like Matt, like educational entrepreneurship ideas, um, people get stuck on that word sometimes, um, thinking about, well, I don't, they just shut down. They're like, well, oh, I don't yeah. want to start a business, you know? Um, but it's not really about starting a business. It's about adopting the entrepreneurial mindset. Um, so I'm wondering if you can maybe talk a little bit about, you, you listed some of the attributes or traits uh, with Matt there. Um, you know, thinking about, you know, people are thinking about, well, I have to cover the standards. I have to cover content. You know, how does that mesh with those teachers who I'm just trying to play like, you know, what are people listening, uh, thinking about? So what, what do you think about that? Like, I, I, I totally agree with you that if people adopt this mindset, um, the learning is richer, it's deeper. People have buy-in. Um, they're engaged. Um what about some of those skills that they're also uh, developing, those academics? Well, you know, I, I look, look, I mean, kids need to learn some things. I'm not saying that, like, traditional learning is, is bad. I'm, you know, it, I, I think that, that we just have to start infusing some discovery learning into the mix. And I think, uh, you know, social studies is a great place to do it. Like, what's nested in entrepreneurship? It's, it's interdisciplinary learning. There's financial literacy. There, there's, you know, psychology. There's math. I mean, it, it's just a wonderful... It, 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 I don't think... I, can, I, you know, I can't think of a better way to teach young people how to think critically. And, and, and the discovery process is essentially document your assumptions on what we call the Ice House Opportunity Discovery Canvas document your assumptions, and then go out of the classroom, out into the world, and start talking to people about your ideas and see where your assumptions were accurate and where they might have been flawed. 
So can you share maybe some examples of that ice house um, experiences that students um, at any level um, experienced? We, I'd love to hear like what's a project that students did through uh, ice house learning. Oh, I, 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 geez, there's so many of them. I, I, I you know, there, there's thousands of tens of thousands of kids are enrolled in ice house uh, every year in middle schools, high schools, colleges, universities, nonprofit like workforce development. Uh, but, but like from middle school perspective, I remember one story that came out of Erie PA that, that uh, uh, it's what it said, five minutes isn't enough time between classes to get to our locker, get you know from one class to the locker and then to the new class. We need eight minutes. They made a case. These were like 13-year-old kids. They made a case and they went to the principal and the principal adjusted the schedule. Now, what's important here is that these kids had a sense of agency or efficacy, felt listened to. That's, that's really the, the, the important learning. And, and I, you know, Julie, I want to go back to something earlier that you were asking about. What's critical to, to developing entrepreneurial attitudes and skills is solving of ill-structured problems, right? So these are, these, are, these are problems that don't have a single answer. They're not, you can't go in the library and find a book that says there's the answer on page 225. There's no expert that's going to tell you that's the correct answer. What students need to do is learn how to separate signal from noise. You need to learn how to function in ambiguity, in resource constraints, in self-directed environments. That's what the world will demand of them. You know, the, the broader point that I'm trying to make here is, is that what we've, what we've lost sight of, Julie, is the extent to which other directed, routinized learning, which is designed for other directed, routinized work, is preparing students for a world that doesn't exist. It doesn't exist, no longer exist. And, and, but, but, you know, we, that, that correlation is lost on us because it's so deeply embedded in our, in our individual and collective mindset. When people ask me, what is an entrepreneurial mindset? I sometimes answer, you know, well, I don't know. What, what is a non-entrepreneurial mindset? And I'm not saying that to be snarky. I'm saying that maybe getting you to think about your own deeply held beliefs and assumptions that you may not be aware of. Yeah, Gary, I, I love what you're talking about. And it, it kind of points me in a direction um, to a question I want to ask about something that I've been sort of struggling with for a number of years now. Um, and we have an entrepreneurship program in our school, and we do a great job engaging students in developing entrepreneurial mindsets and all the things that you're talking about here. And so I'm glad we're on the right track. Hurrah for us, right? But one thing I've come to realize is that, and I would love to hear your thoughts about this. So if a school adopts a true, robust approach to entrepreneurial mindset building, do you think that that school also has to grapple with the idea that students might not actually see value in their school experience anymore? Like if I'm, if, if I'm a student in, in an 
in a place that is asking me to think about how to get engaged with my learning in really robust ways, how to solve problems, what kind of difference I make, I want to make in the world, you know, and my school isn't aligned with those similar questions in all of its facets, I'm going to be quickly disengaged in those times when I'm not you know, in my quote unquote entrepreneurship classes, or I'm not being able to, you know, um, really stretch that part of my, my brain. So do you think that schools are, if, if they uh, adopt this robust approach to entrepreneurial mindset building, do you think it also behooves them to grapple with the, with the question of what if students don't think school's worthwhile anymore? Well, it's a really good, good question, Mike. And I, I think the opposite is actually what happens. I mean, intuitively, mm. I mean, w- what I've seen is, is the opposite happens. Like all of a sudden, like knowledge becomes really important. And, and I'll tell you so one anecdote mm-hmm. that I, I work with a university system in Mexico called Tecnológico de Monterrey. About 120,000 students across 30 campuses. They're in the top five entrepreneurial universities in the world. And their their mission is to graduate all students with an entrepreneurial mindset with a humanistic outlook. All students. Isn't that great? Yeah, I love that. And, I love and that. so yeah. I you know what they do in incoming freshmen, they're they're I and I don't might not have all of these details exactly right, but like two or three kids self-organize. They give them 1,000 pesos, which I don't know what that is, like 50 bucks, 20 bucks. It's not a lot of money. They give them 1,000 pesos and say, come back in 48 hours with more than 1,000 pesos. That's all the instruction they're getting. And, and I had the privilege of, of interviewing, you know, eight or ten groups of these students after the fact at, at the Monterey campus. And I was shocked at the way these kids said, you know, they were talking about this, you know, the Keystone Cops kind of things that they were trying to do and you know, kind of scrambling to figure stuff out. And by the way, like, I think the school told me, like, uh, on average, it came back with 4,000 4, pesos. But, but, but the, the, the thing that these kids were saying that blew me away was their takeaway from the experience is I'm no longer going to allow the teacher to set the bar for me. I'm going to own this content. But here's another story, you know, uh, Pikes Peak Community College, you know, a couple thousand kids there, developmental students in a community college taking Ice House. And the, and the president of the college, or some of the, I don't know if it was the president of the college, but some of the faculty members came to us and said, you know what the problem here is? People go through the Ice House program, and then they come back into the regular classroom, and they're less, they're, they're just not going to tolerate. And I, you know, I, I think there's some of that. It's like, I'm not going to tolerate this, like, droning lecture and, you know, rote memorization and regurgitation. Yeah, that's what, that's what I wonder, too. And, and, you know, some of what you're suggesting, I think, is really like grassroots efforts to change school. You know, if, if policymakers aren't that interested in, in shifting school to be more in line with what we know um, that we need in the 21st century to prepare students for the things that you're talking about here, right, which is uh, remarkably ambiguous situations and to be hyper-engaged in their learning, right, then, then we have to start that process somewhere and what a better place to start than with students themselves. Let's grow those mindsets together with young people and let's let's make schools do things differently because young people demand that difference. I yeah, I spoke at a conference earlier today and we were talking about this very thing. It's like what it comes down to is intrinsic motivation. 
So I, I said earlier, we encourage people to pursue their own natural interests and their abilities in ways that contribute to the greater good. Kind of get out of the way. We, we have to shift to a role of, of facilitator. Like this is guided mastery, right? And, and at the risk of sounding like a, a, a radical, like what we've lost sight of is that extrinsic rewards undermine intrinsic motivation. So you know, extrinsic rewards, carrots and sticks, letter grades, gold stars, certificates, dollars, whatever, those are all known to undermine intrinsic motivation. So just let that sink in for a moment. And, and so what, what I'm, part of what I'm saying to entrepreneurship educators in our, in, in our training is that you know, when it comes to teaching entrepreneurship, you're going to have to lay down the tools of coercion. These are the things that we use to get people to do things that they might not otherwise be inclined to do. And that's the, that's the big rub because the whole thing, you know, we were talking about on this, this conference earlier today, like what do I got to do to get the A? Tell me what you want, you know. That's an extrinsically motivated student. Yeah, and so and so many many of our school structures, I think, is what you're putting into question there. And I think that's great. I think that's what we talk about here on this podcast all the time is rethinking um, so many of those structures that so many of us have come to know so well. I, I want to talk about your book for a couple of minutes here, Gary, before we get too far into this um, into this conversation. So in, in 2010, you teamed up with a gentleman um, named Clifton Talbert, who is a Pulitzer Prize nominee. And you, uh, you really worked to tell the story of a community in, in Mississippi um, that Clifton had some, you know, life knowledge of and experience with, right? And, and the residents of this community. And, um, you know, for listeners out there, if you want to go check out uh, um, Gary's book, it's called Who Owns the Ice House? Eight Life Lessons from an Unlikely Entrepreneur. You can grab that on Amazon or at your local bookstore, I'm sure. Um, and I haven't had a chance to read the book uh, in its entirety. I read a couple snippets. I loved what I read, and I'm I'm super interested in continuing to read it after this conversation. But I, I wondered, just even reading the snippets I did, you know, you've interviewed and talked to probably hundreds, potentially thousands of, of entrepreneurs. And I'm I'm wondering why this story? What struck you about Clifton and his community in Mississippi, and why did you really want to bring this story to the page? Yeah, it's a great question. So, so in 2008, I was doing a research project for the Cisco Entrepreneur Institute in San Jose, and they hired me to do a gap analysis on the entrepreneurship education ecosystem in North America. So, you very know, no, quick, no big deal, small task, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. And, and it wasn't an exhaustive search, but very quickly. I found that the way entrepreneurship is portrayed in the classroom is largely divorced from the day-to-day -day reality of what a typical entrepreneur is doing. So I went to, back to Cisco and I kind of laid this out and they said, well, what are these entrepreneurs doing? And I said, well, I think they're doing this, that, and the other thing, but like, you know, I need to go out and interview them. And, and so Cisco gave us a, a platform to go out and interview a couple hundred entrepreneurs. 
and, and the, the, the point that's important here is that I wasn't interested in like how Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs thinks. I wanted to understand how does an ordinary person with no particular advantage in life, how do they recognize an opportunity? Why are they so engaged? How do they bring an idea to life when they don't have Stanford MBAs, access to, you know, resources or, or advanced degrees or genius IQs or whatever. How do they do that? And, and, and so I started interviewing these, what I call underdog entrepreneurs or unlikely entrepreneurs across the United States. And I could sit here for the rest of the week and tell you story after story <laughs> of, 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 you know, sure. amazing things. But I actually went to Tulsa to interview a different entrepreneur, a, a guy named Jim Stovall, who lost his eyesight at 29. And after he lost his eyesight, he created a television company that would enable visually impaired people to watch television with their ears. It was in Tulsa. I had some time to kill. I started asking strangers, do you know any entrepreneurs? And they said, you should talk to this guy, Clifton Talbert. He's one of the founders of Stairmaster exercise company. I said, well, that sounds interesting. You know, sure, yeah, yeah. And this, this is like 2008. I got a clamshell. You know, there's no like Google searching people. <laughs> and so I just called him up. I said, Mr. Talbert, here's what I'm doing. I'm doing a Cisco project. I'm only in Tulsa today. Can we come to your office and do like a two hour on camera, like ethnographic interview? And he graciously agreed. I showed up a couple hours later in his office with a you know, film crew and, and, you know, got it all set up. And I said, how did you learn how to think? Like, like, what influenced you to be entrepreneurial? Now, at the time, Mike, I didn't know that he was a Pulitzer nominee, that he'd written a dozen books, made a major motion picture, that he'd lectured the Supreme Court. He was on the board of J.P. Chase Morgan. You know, I, I didn't know all those things. All I, you know. So he's not only he's not only an underdog entrepreneur, as you as you say, or unlikely entrepreneur, but also under the radar kind of guy too. <laughs> right, 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 right. And so, so, you know, I'll never forget this, but, but like, you know, he kind of looked off in the middle distance and he said, like long before this word entrepreneur became popular, the concept still existed. And he, you know, started to explain to me that he was born in this poor cotton community in the 1940s in the Mississippi Delta. He was born to a teenage mother, uh, didn't know a father until well into adulthood. And he was being passed around to his relatives. So the future for people to look like me was in the cotton fields. And he said, that's what I was doing. When I wasn't in school, I was in the cotton fields since I was a little kid, five, six years old. And, and he said, if it you know, weren't for this one man, and he pulled this black and white photograph out and showed me a picture of his Uncle Cletus, the picture on the cover of the book. And he said, this man taught me how to think like an entrepreneur. He was my uncle. He, he asked me to come work alongside him when I was 13 years old. He owned the ice house. And this guy taught me how to think like an entrepreneur. And the hair on the back of my neck was standing straight up. It was like this. I, I really didn't even know it at the time, but this was the story to me that sort of captured the essence of what I was trying to say. That, that this is a way of thinking that can empower ordinary people to do extraordinary things. There's no magic. There's no, you know, secret DNA, you don't have to have, you know, the, the right genetic disposition or, or anything. It's, 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 a, it's a way of thinking and it can empower people. And it's, it's the, the real idea that, that I want people to take away from the ice house. I mean, here's, 
that, that I learned from, from listening to Clifton talk about his Uncle Cleve is this simple idea that's hanging right out in front of us and we can't see it. And, and that is that, that, that we get what we want by helping other people get what they want. It's like a law of nature. But most of us are so busy trying to get our own needs met, fill our jobs, pay the bills, raise the kids, save some money, you know, blah, 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 that we never stop to look around and say, what do other people need? How could I improve this? How can I make myself more useful to more humans? That's, that's really the essence of it. But the eight life lessons in the book are, are eight core concepts that we distilled from hundreds of interviews just sort of told through the lens of Clifton Talbert's journey from the Mississippi Delta to, to adulthood. That sounds really incredible and super resonant. And, you know, listeners, I hope that you're able to go pick up a copy of, of Gary's book. Gary, before we kind of move into the move in maybe to the last segment here, um, I, I got to ask a little bit more about this unlikely entrepreneur model that you're talking about here. If you could pick one more person that you could share with our listeners and with us, um, who is somebody that we should go, you know, see if we can look up on YouTube that um, is another unlikely entrepreneur that you really have found fascinating in your journeys and interviews? Hmm. Wow. Um, that we could go look up on YouTube. Yeah, or or some other, you know, um, space where we might be able to just check out and see what that person's doing. Um, doesn't have doesn't have to be YouTube. We're we're not you know supported by YouTube or anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. Well, I, I you know, I'm going to put the question back on you, Mike, and, and say, like these entrepreneurs, they're like positive deviants, mm. right? They're in every town. They're in every community. They're not drawing attention to themselves. They're not driving Lamborghinis. They're not making headlines. But they're everywhere, and, and, and we're just not paying attention to them. And all I'm trying to do in my work is to, is to sort of illuminate. Like, look at this sort of sub-segment you know, segment of the population and the way they think and the way they act, and, and what can we learn from them? I mean, I, um, you know, I can think that there's some of the entrepreneurs that we featured in the Ice House Entrepreneurship Program. You know, one of them was Brian Scudamore. I mean, he seems like a big fancy name. You know, he's the one I heard got junk guy. Oh, interesting. He started, he started, you know, he's one of the featured entrepreneurs in the Ice House program. Started 1-800-GOT-JUNK with, with like a, a thousand bucks, 18 years old. He bought a used pickup truck and some flyers and some gasoline and started knocking on doors. You know, there's so many stories. There's one guy, there's another featured entrepreneur in the Ice House program is, is a kid named Rodney Walker, who... In a dozen foster homes in the south side of Chicago, his parents are both incarcerated. You know, horrible upbringing. In an entrepreneurship course, in tenth grade, completely changed the trajectory of his life. He's, you know, he was all but dropped out of high school, and and now he's at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, and I, I think really what the message you're sharing here is that look local. You you could know someone in your family that is an entrepreneur in terms of their mindset and their approach 
to living life and the the sort of energy that they're putting out there in the world. You could know somebody, you know, if you're a teacher out there, you could know somebody that works down the hall from you and that person is really embodying what you're talking about. It doesn't have to be, right? Like you said earlier, Gary, it doesn't have to be Jobs, Bezos, Zuckerberg, and Musk, right? That's, yeah, that, <laughs> that's the, the, the apex fallacy. Yes, yeah, like, yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, you, you know, it, it's it's very misleading. You know, we we, we our, our ability to embrace this is limited by the ways we define it and this mm-hmm. availability heuristic. You know, we hear the word entrepreneur, we think Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk or Donald Trump or whatever, and we think, ah, I don't want any part of that. Yeah, yeah. I, I interviewed a guy for my podcast. I think we're going to drop this episode this week. This guy named Elias Ruiz, a sixth grade science teacher in California. And he was, uh, he's a veteran and, and he was with a slight back injury and he wanted to find a way to make a lightweight platform that he could take to the river and stand up on. He liked the bow fish. You can't do that sitting down in a canoe or a kayak, but it had to be lightweight. And so he was working with his sixth grade students to like figure out, okay, I'm going to strap a bunch of empty two liter bottles to the bottom of a sheet of plywood. How many two liter bottles do we need to displace 350 pounds? And he's working out the calculations with his students in the classroom. And then he went home and figured out how to weave two-liter bottles to a sheet of plywood. I love it. That's amazing. And he turned it into a company. It's called Feather Raft. And it's like he's selling these things all over the country. And it evolved and it morphed. But he's still teaching sixth-grade science. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. Those I think are the, the everyday entrepreneurs that I'm, 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 I'm trying to you know, connect people with. Sure, sure. 100%. Well, Gary, listen, this has been a really terrific conversation. Um, I know that Matt and Julie and I have appreciated it. If if people want to know more about Eli um, and your work with Ice House, um, give us a give us a quick uh, you know direction on where they can find out more, and then and then we'll do a little reflecting on this conversation. So, where where can we find more about Eli and Ice House? So, so thank you, Mike. It, it's like you can buy the book on Amazon. It's hardcover, softcover, Kindle, Audible, you know, all versions are out there. You can find that. That's an easy way to engage with us. A lot of what we do is teacher training. And we hold uh, a four public teacher trainings a year, to t- like for how to teach entrepreneurship in a classroom. We have four public trainings a year. We do a lot of on-site trainings with uh, you know, specific colleges, universities, school systems, and whatnot. But, but you can learn more about that at elimindset.com. You can also learn more about the Ice House uh, uh, Entrepreneurship Program there as well. Great. And we'll, dro- we'll drop that into our show notes so listeners out there, you can get access to uh, Eli and to Ice House. Hey, everyone. This is Mike. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Rethinking EDU with Gary Schoeniger. We hope that you've really loved this conversation and learned a little bit about entrepreneurship. I know that all three of us certainly did during this episode. We've got some really cool news coming up. So starting with next episode, we are going to release something we're calling the Think Tank. And this is an extension of our usual Rethinking EDU conversations. They'll be 10 to 20 minutes in length, and you can access them on our Patreon page that is patreon.com slash rethinking edu. 
They'll be behind a paywall, so you'll have to invest in our show a little bit, anywhere between $1 and $5 a month, and you can hear a little bit more of our unplugged-style conversations with some of our guests in the think tank. So head on over to patreon.com slash rethinkingedu, check us out there, and also give a listen to our very own Matt Downing's podcast, Diving Deep EDU. Thanks. A quick interruption to let you know about another great podcast. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Yeah. Diving deep, EDU. Thought-provoking conversations. So, Gary, every uh, conversation that we have here on Rethinking EDU, we like to kind of end in a nice little reflection where we, the co-hosts, share some of our thoughts that this conversation is, you know, encouraging in our minds. And we would love for you to participate in in this reflection as well, but no pressure. Um, and I see Julie has eagerly raised her hand to share her reflections. Julie, what is this conversation making you rethink about education? Well, I'm thinking about um, the teacher's perspective. And I'm thinking about what examples are we providing for our students um, you know, our students are seeing us at work, right? Um, so if they're watching us, is it all about like, these are the parameters of school, we have to barrel toward the test, we have to cover this textbook, you know, nah, right? Um, so we're here to design learning experiences to learn alongside you to get at what it's at authentic, and for you to develop this tools and skills, you need to go out and live your best life. But what about for teachers? Like, how are we living our best lives and so many teachers i think right now especially at the end of the school year are just like wrecked you know um not all of us look like we're having all that much fun i have to say this year. um but if we're not living our best lives as teachers um with that entrepreneurial mindset ourselves you know why not and what can we change in our careers and our livelihoods and our lives to make that change a reality uh, what if we could adopt uh, an entrepreneurial mindset? Like maybe it starts with us as as models uh, for how to do work differently, just right from our classrooms. So that's what I'm thinking about. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, Matt. What about you? What are you thinking? Yeah, this has been a great conversation. It's uh, I really like the the idea of the engagement where an entrepreneur is engaging in something, and it's sort of gets to the core of what they're interested about, what they're intrigued about, what they're curious about, what they're passionate about. And I think that's a great way to approach entrepreneurship. Um, and I feel like this conversation, I mean, I'm, I'm probably biased here, but this conversation I feel like <laughs> gets to the deeper core of what entrepreneurship is rather than just the selling of something. But it's the engagement. It's the active participation um and it's also exciting you know to think about this and the fact that anyone could be entrepreneurial and it's also a mindset um so that's been really helpful and i've really appreciated yeah, that yeah. gary what what about you what would you like to share your reflections about this conversation well i i think i i like what you said julie in in that 
you know, we, we that that's our sort of Trojan horse strategy at Eli. Like we've trained three thousand <laughs> educators from all over the world, have undergone our entrepreneurial mindset training. It's a train the trainer model, and I it it reinvigorates the teacher, it empowers the teacher to go back in the classroom and and practice these things in some way that they can model this for the students. I mean, that's that's really. That's that's the right way to think about it, Julie. I, I think you're right. That's awesome. I mean, that's that's exactly what it makes me think of. It's not um, okay. Teach this. Teach the kids how to be an entrepreneur. But what are we modeling, and how do we reinvigorate our classrooms with this mindset? I I think it's fantastic, Gary. I really enjoyed this conversation. Well, well, the the, the big challenge that we face at Eli is exactly what you guys have all sort of locked into, which is that. We hear that word entrepreneur. We think that's about business and making money, and it's not interesting to me. And I think to assume that entrepreneurs are driven by a profit motive is to miss, you really, really miss the, the, the developmental benefits of entrepreneurship education. Yeah, that's really terrific. And, and I appreciate you sharing that because I think that fits sort of in where my reflections are, um, is by spending time with students and and adults in schools talking about entrepreneurial mindsets, I think it gets to really some of these big points that you were sharing, Gary, which is, and I, and I wrote down a couple of things that you were talking. Cause I was like, yes, this is like resonating with my practice and resonating with why I think um, developing this kind of mindset in schools is so important. And that's this creation of value for others, Right. If we, if we look around and say, what do other people need? What does the world need? All of a sudden, our life becomes so much more you know, built on thriving because we can help uplift other people and we can help uplift ourselves and our communities to become better places. And all of a sudden, we're fulfilled in ways that we've never been fulfilled maybe before. And then we become hyper engaged in the in the work and the things that really matter in our lives. And I think that's sort of exactly what you're what you're promoting here. I think in a really healthy and amazing way. That's that's exactly what I'm saying, Mike. And I, I'm saying that like like look, what happens to a human being when learning and work become not a source of misery or drudgery, but a source of joy? A source of meaning and engagement and purpose and, and efficacy, right? What happens to an individual? That that's you know we look at entrepreneurs and think they're amazing, and so we default to these dispositional assumptions. It has nothing to do with their disposition. It has everything to do with the nature of the goal they're pursuing, right? And I, I, I'm asking. I mean, something you know to leave you guys to think about further it, 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 to, to your listeners. Is, is to ask yourself, do you have a compelling goal? And, and, and if not, why not? Because I think that's the only thing that separates the entrepreneur from the non-entrepreneur. It's the absence of a compelling goal. I'm just going to work to pay the bills and amuse myself. And this gets to a conversation we had a few episodes back with Emily Liebtag and Chris Unger. 
so Emily Liebtag wrote a, wrote a book um, just recently with Tom Vander Ark called Difference Making at the Heart of Learning. And her premise of the book, and she talks about this in our conversation with her and Chris Unger, is, is that students in schools need to be asking um need to be asking themselves exactly what you're suggesting, Gary, which is how do we make a difference in the world and how do we, you know, design learning that encourages us to figure out what that difference is. And then also how do we identify what difference we want to make in the world, right? Those are, those are all really critical constructs that schools I think need to be spending more time addressing and and also, I would just add, and I think like an underpinning of this conversation is that there's an imperative there. School and the the world is 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 dramatically different than it was, gosh, even 18 months ago, and it, um and we need to help prepare students to act effectively in the world that they are living in right now. Cool. Yeah. Well. Gary, it's it's been a pleasure having you on our podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I hope, listeners, that you all enjoyed this conversation. Before we get on out of here, Gary, give us a couple plugs. What's something you're reading? What's something um, that you'd like to share with our audience? And just remember, we'll we'll include the link to um, Eli and Icehouse and your white paper all in our show notes. So, what else does a guy like you spend your time? You know, interact. So, so I have a hobby, which is woodworking or furniture building. But, but a really in, interesting uh, book that you know, uh, I, I read like everything that Martin Seligman uh, publishes, and I'm taking a course on Coursera now about positive psychology and positive education and how that aligns with um, our work in, in entrepreneurship education. It's really about thriving. It's about uh, perma or, or and, and thriving, and that's that's the alignment there. That's great. And what's one Martin Seligman book that you really have enjoyed? So um, I, I think the one I would recommend the most is called Learned Optimism. That is hands down the best $7 I've ever spent in my life. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, great. And uh, anything else you'd like to plug? No, I, I mean, I think that's it. I've really enjoyed talking with you guys. I love what you're doing and, and, and happy to be part of it. Thank you. Listeners, thank you all so much for joining us for this episode of Rethinking EDU. And remember, hop on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Rethinking EDU. You can support us at the $1 a month level. That's a grand total of $12 a year that you could share that would really make a difference in helping us continue this conversation. And uh, co-hosts, it's been a pleasure. As usual, listeners, have a great day. And remember to always keep rethinking EDU.